With a few impressive exceptions, software is rarely written by one person. It takes a team, and as that team outgrows a single shared office, coordination and communication become emergent problems. There are lots of lessons to be learned from companies who have already found approaches that scale. In this episode, I interview Tremail Turner, Head of Engineering, Traffic, and Seattle Site Lead at Stripe. We discuss infrastructure, organizational structure, and some insights made at Stripe. It's an in-depth conversation with useful advice for all stages of the journey of a modern software engineer. Tremail, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. Super excited to be here. Well, to kick things off, can you tell me a little bit about where you got started in your journey as a software engineer? Sure. I think, you know, it, it's interesting story, or maybe not so interesting, depending on your perspective. But I had that sort of privileged background of getting a computer when I was nine or 10, started off with a Commodore 64. And then my dad brought home an Apple IIe and, and then a PC and, and Lo and behold, I had this plethora of computing devices around me. My dad also owned an arcade when I was growing up. And so I had sort of the Ricky Schroeder, Silver Spoons arcade game thing going in my bedroom as well, even though we weren't necessarily wealthy per se, just maybe solidly middle class. In any case, I was surrounded by all of these devices and I would always look on the, you know, where were these things made? Where were they manufactured? I was really, really curious to open them up and and just learn more about where these wonderful devices were sourced. And I would invariably see Japan, made in Japan, made in Japan, every once in a while, maybe made in China, very rarely made in the USA. So that sort of planted the seed. And as I graduated high school, I had this opportunity to select, uh, I, I, enrolled into the University of Pennsylvania and all of the computer science engineering students at Penn, I think different than the other engineering students had to choose a foreign language to study. So I had, again, the seed planted in my head that all of this cool tech that I was into was sourced in Japan. And I was 16 and I didn't know any better. And I love Nintendo and all of these other things. So I decided to study Japanese, enrolled in Penn as a CSE student and more or less a, a a Japanese minor, even though I didn't officially declare a minor at that point, studied the language, studied the culture, started even taking graduate classes in the language. And then I dropped out of Penn when I was 19 and I moved to Tokyo to work as a software engineer. Did that at a little startup for about a year, then came back to the States, lived in San Francisco for a bit, commuted between San Francisco and Tokyo, then moved back to my home state of Michigan, started a company, eventually sold that company and went to a couple of failed startups thereafter uh, in the digital marketing space, what we now call the digital marketing space. Went from those to eventually landing in the Volkswagen group of all places. Volkswagen as in the folks that make the cars, Audi, Bugatti, Lamborghini, Bentley, etc. And I joined as a marketing professional, believe it or not, in the Volkswagen brand. And I was identified as the sort of technical person within the brand to make sure that the brand was making digital marketing decisions that were founded in solid technical foundations. And so the team built this thing called the New Beetle Online Buying Program, which was the first time in the United States that automotive ODM actually sold cars online. And, and technically, that's not how it actually worked. There was this sort of marshalling of the dealer inventory onto VW.com. But as far as a customer knew, it was being able to buy directly from the OEM. 
So that was a pretty big deal. And a lot of folks got a lot of good credit and some promotions and all kinds of great things. But I spent about 10 years at Volkswagen, uh, eventually moving from the marketing department and the Volkswagen brand to core engineering and supporting all of the brands as a portfolio manager for the Americas, traveling all around the United States, Canada, and eventually relocating my office to Puebla, Mexico. Live in Puebla for about a year, traveled again frequently to Germany. For some reason, South Africa was also in my portfolio because the South African technical team didn't want to align itself with Germany for reasons we could probably talk about in a different podcast. <laughs> and went from Volkswagen to Nissan and again, joined Nissan in marketing in a captive agency as an account director uh, working on the Infinity brand. Spent a few months, actually only six months there before I got a call from this tiny little video game company. Again, these you know references earlier in your life coming back later in your life to haunt you, or maybe it's just Providence, or maybe it's just coincidence, who knows. But the call came from this company called Nintendo, which I don't know if a lot of your listeners have ever heard of. I uh, couldn't resist at least coming out and having deeper conversations. I had never been to the Pacific Northwest, never been to Portland or you know Seattle or any Vancouver anywhere uh, in this general area. Came out and loved the place. Fell in love with like the scenery and just sort of everything about it. And of course, it was Nintendo. So I was like, sure, I'm going to do this. Joined Nintendo, launched the 3DS, the Wii U, and this thing called the Switch which again, I'm not sure folks have heard of, uh, worked on account services, the eShop and developer productivity. If you use a Switch and you have a Nintendo Network account ID or NNID using the Nintendo Network account services, my team was responsible for building that, so you can blame me. Probably a lot of folks are happy that they don't exclusively have to use their friend codes in order to make online connections. In any case, uh, spent eight years about at Nintendo, then went to uh, F5 Networks for about 13 months before someone pinged me on LinkedIn and said, hey, you should come have lunch. And it was from this, I think at that time, still within tech, known really well, but not known very well outside of tech, this little company called Stripe. And I went to lunch on a Taco Tuesday and I never left. And I've been at Stripe for the last three years doing a plethora of things, but we can probably talk about that a little later. For sure. What was the initial grab that made Stripe interesting at that time? So I love telling this story because I think there's no such thing as like a bad reason for joining a company. It's the reason that makes most sense to you. But I had had a a fairly decent career and, you know, I I started university when I was 16. So I'm I'm still relatively young. At least I, I like to pretend that I am. I looked at this company and I'm like, it's a payment services provider. What's so exciting about Stripe? And so I sent a mail out to a friend of mine that had joined a few months prior, this gentleman named Niels Provost. And Niels had spent a number of years at Google and was responsible for a number of core security primitives that your listeners are likely aware of. But Niels and I have been friends for like 25 years. And so I, I sent Niels a note and I was like, why did you join Stripe? Like you left Google, you had this really great position, really great surface area, like, you know, billions and billions of people touched by the things that you do. And Niels gave me three reasons. He said, one, he wanted to be at a company where he believed in the mission. He, and it like made sense to him what the company was doing and why they were doing it. 
Two, he wanted to be somewhere where he felt like he could have the agency to do the right thing, which was an interesting point, I thought, because I I felt like, at least externally observing what his time was at Google, that he had that. But it turned out in subsequent conversations that that wasn't necessarily the case. And then third, he wanted to be around people that he just really enjoyed working with. And so when I went in and had my conversations about what was possible at Stripe, I started to sort of index on those principles and index on those opportunities to, you know, be mission focused and to work with really incredible people and to do like really interesting work, like that mission and purpose thing that we all crave. And it turned out that even from the very first conversations, I could just see that emanating from everyone that I spoke to at Stripe. Everyone was extremely happy, extremely positive, super kind, but still doing quite rigorous work and really like adamant about the the importance of the things that they were working on. And then I found that it wasn't quite just a payment services provider, that there are a lot of things that the industry by and large, I think, has learned more about what Stripe stands for with the so-called global payments and treasury network or the GPTN. And there's so much more coming that I unfortunately can't talk about in this conversation, but I can't wait for the world to see. Very cool. Well, I know when some people start a new position, uh, sometimes it's a company that's large and successful like Stripe that just says, hire smart people and we'll figure it out. Other times you start and you need to have started yesterday and there's a mandate for you. What was your onboarding experience? My experience was interesting in that I joined an infrastructure team that had already had sort of a, well, at least it started to build a a great deal of trust and uh, credibility within the organization for executing with excellence and having sort of a, a generally solid perspective on operational integrity. But the team was still somewhat new, nascent in its, in its structure and its identity. So a lot of the time when we're talking about what a team's identity is in these scale technical organizations, we talk about what the charter is. Like, what is the purpose of your team? How does it impact the business? What is it going to do to continue moving the business forward, whatever needles or whatever metrics it might assign itself to? And as I found out more about this team that I was joining, the metrics were were fine, but were they things that were super motivating? Were they things that really, you know, if you were not part of the team and you were out on objectively on the outside looking at those metrics, would it be easy to reason like what the team's purpose was and why it existed? And, and arguably as an engineer, you probably would be able to, but if you were a marketing person or a salesperson or some other function that's trying to understand like, what, what does this team do for me? I didn't know that the, articulation was as crisp as I would have liked it. And so my onboarding was really learning about that. And and Stripe gives you the space. In fact, you're actively encouraged to listen first and not be so eager, especially if you're joining as as a leader, to make any changes or try and drive any, you know, specific impact, but just learn and absorb and try to reason about what the opportunities are for your teams. And so I was super appreciative of the fact that I was given that space and and it's kind of an industry meme now that stripes like to write a lot, which means there are a ton of things to read and it's really easy to get sort of a, a longitudinal history of 
what decisions were made, why they were made. I think when I joined Stripe internally, it was probably a bit more transparent than it is now because at the scale that it's operating at, there, there are a few more controls that it has to pay attention to. But there was a time where internally you could read almost anything, like any source code, any documentation, any sort of we call it falafeling internally, but it basically just means having a conversation about a topic. Any of the notes from any of those conversations were availed to you. And so if you're a person that likes to nerd out and just read interesting things and, and learn from the perspectives of others, it's a playground. And I found myself just being overly thrilled at the opportunity to learn about the, you know, at that point, about eight year, nine year history of the organization and get up to, for me at least, getting up to speed quickly uh, was enabled by that transparency. So I was quite thrilled to, and you know, sort of the, the summary is that it was a relatively empowering startup for me. Well, I definitely see a lot of advantages in having that transparency in history to go back and learn things, maybe even from uh, employees that aren't there anymore, or uh, to learn about initiatives that, uh, you know, institutional knowledge and that sort of thing. I know you've probably been in roles where that wasn't around. Can you compare and contrast any, what the experience was like having that sort of access? Yeah. So I won't name any companies. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> oh, because, uh, you know, one thing, this industry is super small, and so... Uh, a little bit of advice to anyone listening, don't burn any bridges. You never know when you might be working with somebody or for somebody or they might be working for you. But I will say the contrast with an organization that already has its controls in place and probably has a bit of these uh, so-called barriers or what I like to refer to as high friction environments, not even intentionally. It's just the nature of an organization sort of growing either deliberately or organically over time. And there are many functions that might creep up and many pillars that might creep up. And there are dividing lines and some organizations even codify those dividing lines and titles or organizational structure. And Every software engineer who's been doing it for a little while and, and even folks who are maybe just early in their careers coming into the industry have likely heard of Conway's Law, where you, you tend to ship your organizational structure. I think in, in those more rigid organizations, uh, it's sometimes a unintentional consequence that the, the structures and the barriers that are in place make it very difficult to reason about how do you have sort of that horizontal ability to drive impact within an organization? How do I talk to, a, as an infrastructure engineer, platform engineer, and a product engineer, and maybe some other supporting functions, and maybe business functions, and bring them all together in order to take a really good idea and drive it through the execution saliently without having to go through a bunch of different meetings and a bunch of different escalations? I think in those really tight, rigid organizations where people live and die by their titles, you see them moving a bit more slowly, arguably much more slowly. Now, that's not to say that Stripe doesn't have rigidity and doesn't have rigor. It has all of those things. But for example, we don't have titles. So another thing that I love talking about is David Singleton, who's our CTO. David's workday job family and title is the exact same as mine, software engineer. That's what we are. We're software engineers. Now, we have internal levels, 
my level is in the sort of manager leveling and David's is in the exec leveling, but that doesn't sort of amplify or project itself out into our conversations. Now, of course, everyone knows that David's our CTO, but the, the idea is that you can walk up to me, you can walk up to David, you can walk up to anyone, regardless of your tenure, regardless of your function. And if you can proffer a good idea, or if you have a challenge, or you have an escalation, the sort of implied rigidity of a barrier is not there. And I find that that helps us move a lot more quickly. You'd mentioned joining an operations team that was already assembled. Can you talk about what it's like to join uh, something that uh, has that momentum as opposed to starting a greenfield project? Yeah, I've done both, and, I, and I've since done both at Stripe. And I think the thing that I learned as a lesson, and one that I have to keep relearning, <laughs> to be honest, is that every change is an inflection that you have to sort of take the time to consider and understand how does that inflection implicate you and how does it impact others? And I think that also segues into this notion that intent and impact are always different. So what I intend to do, you and I are having a conversation right now. And if I say, Kyle, I fill in the blank of the thing that I need you to do. What I intend to do is perhaps to enable you and and to give you support and to tell you, uh, this is an opportunity for something that would be great. And, and if you invest your time in it, it's going to be wonderful. What you may hear and interpret is, Tramel just told me to go do something. I better go get it done. And I think a lot of leaders, actually, it doesn't even have to be sort of the quote unquote leadership conversation. Just a lot of folks who might implicate others in work that needs to be done need to be clear and understand that what your intent and what your impact might be are often not congruent, unless you are deliberately taking the time to make sure that there's mutual understanding on both sides. And so to your question, joining a, a team that's already functioning and high functioning, I think you you really have to take care to come in to honor the work that's been done and respect the work. I, I actually had a conversation with a peer of mine who was a vice president at Microsoft who had recently joined Stripe. And I mentioned to them like, hey, you know, In some of your language, the way that you're coming across, it sounds like you are like, I I totally understand you're trying to support the team, but it sounds like you're being like very directive. And it almost sounds like you don't understand the work that has come prior, like 10, 11 years of solid development by really smart people that have blood, sweat, and tears into a lot of the scaffolding. And sure, there are still gaps and sure, there are still opportunities for growth and maybe even the need to have some uh, dramatic change in, in some of the way and, and behaviors that we have implicated in, in, in the design of these systems and services. But let's make sure that we're using the type of language that, again, is inclusive, is supportive, is is giving people sort of recognition for the good, solid work that they've done. And again, like I said at the beginning of this, I have to remind myself of that constantly because I, I think it's a challenge Really, we are hired in these roles, engineer, leader, and everything that intersects and is in between in order to make a difference. And many of us have a bias for engagement and for action. And if you're moving too fast, you want to make sure that you're not sort of 
rolling over people and leaving a trail of dead bodies behind you, you know, which is a horrible, horrible <laughs> anachronistic metaphor. But still, I think fairly prescient that you, you want to make sure that you're giving people the space to teach you what they've done for you to integrate into an environment well and then contribute and earn trust. And we could talk a lot about trust if you'd like, but that that's one of the key factors for me joining a team that's already operating well. Yeah, let's get into trust, actually. I mean, there's trust at many levels. There's trust between manager and uh, mentee and between departments. Where are the areas you focus? So I always use the phrase earn trust. And I know that sometimes runs rubs people the wrong way because many people believe that trust is implicit. I don't. And I think that there's a real good reason why. If I just join your team, even if we've been working in the same organization for tens of years, you don't know me. You don't, you don't know the way that I'm intending to show up as this new function, be it leadership, again, I see if I'm subordinate to you, doesn't matter. The dynamics of our relationship have just changed because there, again, is one of those inflections. And so the environment has changed. The expectations have changed. And we have to be super crisp and clear about our expectations on both sides. We have to be super crisp and clear on why we're doing what we're doing. Who's our user? Why are we doing this? What metrics drive the intent and purposeful work that we're doing? And we have to be really clear on what brings each of us joy. Like, why are we doing this individually and how are we intending to grow individually and as a collective, as a team? And all of those conversations can be had if there's a relationship between the people who have the relationship or who have this new connection, who have this, are going through this new inflection. Maybe it's not that difficult. In many cases, I think there is probably the need for at least one crucial conversation within sort of the, the litany of things that I just described. And when you recognize that those opportunities exist for having the conversation, you sort of recognize and see that, ah, there is an opportunity to either reinforce, re-engage, or strengthen the trust narrative that we have between the two of us, or between myself and the team, or even between myself and an organization. And trust is, as I sometimes like to say, a bit of a leaky abstraction because people all have sort of a definition. And of course, there's a Webster's canonical according to Hoyle definition of trust that you can rely upon. But I think if you were to sit down with five people and poll them, what does trust mean to you? You would likely get five nuanced answers. And so it's really important to have those crisp transparent, and sometimes vulnerable conversations so that you can, again, either strengthen the trust that you have or build that trust between you and, and whatever object that you're intending to have trust in, again, an organization, a team, or another individual. So, Has that process changed a lot in light of the pandemic and remote work and things along these lines? I do think that the pandemic has definitely added nuance and it really presents a number of challenges for everyone, not just leaders, not just people who are trying to be led or supported, sponsored, championed, what have you. There is something about the 
sort of two-dimensional projection of a person, <laughs> even even though you can see motion and you can hear audio and, and you you sort of know that it's a very real person that you're talking to, but there is this uncanny valley of the distance and separation uh, that, uh, you know, some uh, Zoom or Teams or Meet or what have you, the thing that's marshalling the conversation between individuals or individuals and teams or teams and teams uh, it allows for you you can lose just a lot of context and a lot of again nuance if you allow it to happen that way like it'd be super simple to just say hey let's get on a zoom let's get on a meet whatever and we'll have a chat and everything that any issue that we need to chat through it, it'll be fine we'll we'll talk through it but you can't see body language as effectively as you could in person, or you you may not have the opportunity as you might in person to have those hallway conversations or serendipitous chats where at Stripe, we like to call them collisions, where you just sort of walk into someone and, and you're like, oh yeah, you know what? We, we should have had a bit more of a, a deeper conversation about this one topic. Maybe we should, we want to go grab lunch together and, and talk it through. Now that all being said, there are plenty of teams that are highly effective and doing a tremendous amount of good work who have been fully remote far before the pandemic. And the intrepid leader who needs to enable his or her team will be one that will look to those already successful organizations and try to learn as much as they can and try to take those learnings to test them against their own organization and then see where their own organization can iterate and innovate to become much better at having those conversations that may that might have been in person persistent in the past and now might be hybrid or might be remote forward or might be slowly returning to office but not quite fully back to the office because hey we're still in a pandemic so yes the pandemic has influenced how we build trust but I think it's just like any other inflection. You have to take the time to listen, to learn, and to build off of those learnings so that you can move forward faster. Well, I find that most professionals, software engineers especially, or people adjacent to that in technology, they're not just people who get a job and they think, this is where I'll be for the next 40 years. Everyone's on a career journey in a lot of ways, especially around learning and being challenged. Do you have any thoughts on how to create the right paths for people? Pathing is an individualized thing. It's something where, you know, you have to have support. I think you are building a structure and a path for yourself, but there are many who have had to do that exact same thing, who've gone through that exact same exercise. And though their path may not be exactly as yours will be, there are probably many lessons that you can learn and you can sort of think of it as, uh, you know, I'm a distributed systems person. And so I think a lot about fault domains and failure modes. And I think about learning uh, objectively how to avoid those, but also realizing that they're going to happen. Any system of sufficient complexity is going to break. We all know this. It's just part of the universal law of scalability. And I think human systems are the most complicated systems that we'll ever be exposed to. And so regardless of any path that you follow, in fact, 
famously, <laughs> there is the manager's path. You know, Camille Fournier has has written this tome that many leaders in the engineering space have read and have learned quite a bit from. I, I am hopeful for it's a great book. Everyone should read it. But remember that it's just guidance, and you are likely going to in your career and your journey as a leader and your ability to, or your, your journey to uh, sort of build a, a reasonably great and comfortable situation for yourself, you're going to hit those failure modes and you're going to hit those fault domains. And one of the more interesting conversations I think to have is, have you built your resiliency muscle? Are you able to be adaptive and aware and introspective so that when you hit those fault domains and those failure modes, you, you, you learn about what just happened and how to avoid it for yourself or how to navigate it more effectively the next time something of that shape occurs. So, Do you guys do blameless postmortems or any process like that that you find effective? Absolutely. And I think that one thing I'll say about blameless postmortems that we don't talk about a lot in the industry is attribution. I think obviously you don't want to walk into a situation where people are blame throwing because of an event. There are so many contributing factors. And in fact, even the language that we use has to comport to this notion of the, the system is complex. The, the service substrate is complicated and it's likely that it was no individual deliberate action that caused this fault to happen. It was a number of contributing factors and understanding those factors is important. But whilst you're understanding those factors, attribution of what occurred, oh, the again, the, the compute control plane or the whatever software defined network topology was for some reason, the assumptions that we had about that were incorrect. And understanding where those misplaced assumptions are is really important and really critical. But that's not blame. That's just attribution. So yes, indeed, we, we do have blameless postmortems, but with high attribution so that we are clear on where we specifically need to build improvements and, again, hopefully avoid similar shaped incidents in the future. Well, I realize a lot of the infrastructure might be, you know, private NDA type conversation, but I'm curious if there's any aspects of it that you would stress that help make you guys be a more resilient organization. I think one of the things that helps us with resiliency is really being rigorous about, you know, how we test and how, and when I say test, I don't mean strictly performance volume testing or uh, having some QA team at Stripe, engineers and service providers and, and product organizations are uh, chiefly responsible for testing their own services, their own code, their own products, tests both written into their software and tests from the perspective of volume testing or heuristic testing or fuzzing uh, and what have you. We also have horizontal organizations. Uh, for instance, we have a, a very rigorous and I think high competency uh, reliability organization that spends a lot of its time helping teams understand attribution and helping teams understand where there are opportunities to dive deeper into areas of a potential failure mode and fault domain. And I think 
the more that you have open conversations, one of, one of my favorite conversations that we have weekly at Stripe is operations review, ops review. Happens every week on a Thursday. We shift the time just because we have different geos and we want to make sure that we give as many folks within the tech org, as we call it, which is just the amalgam of engineering and product, the opportunity to participate. And it's a, it's a conversation that I just really am thrilled to be a part of every week because you learn so much. Things that I would maybe not within my pillar, which we, we didn't talk about specifically what I do at Stripe, but I am responsible for networking compliance and a new infrastructure product that we are bootstrapping. And being able to to hear my partners on billing or on issuing or any of the other products or any of the platform enablement for those products talk about the types of failure modes that they're seeing and uh, you know, as I am responsible for the service mesh, if I hear something about, oh, you know, leader election for these services is taking an inordinately high amount of time, and my metrics for whatever reason were not surfacing that type of issue, I can then go deeper. Like, oh, how did you how did you notice that? Oh, if you look at this in our, I think it's safe to say that we have a ton of different <laughs> telemetry panes of glass where we can see what's happening within the system, but SignalFX is one of those things that we use this and, and someone might point me to a SignalFX graph and go, yeah, if you look here o- over time, you can see that the the sort of service level commitment that we have and the SLIs that we have driving towards that service commitment were violated you know, on these days. And, and this is what we saw and this is how we resolved it. And, and then I can take that back to my team and have a deeper conversation about, oh, how do we make it so that that team doesn't even have to care about looking at leader election and the amount of latency that there might be built within the system as services are trying to communicate with each other because they probably shouldn't need to. And and then we can have deeper conversations about building more reliability and committing to higher service levels and the areas that we enable for those teams. So resiliency for me is, and I'll probably say this quite a bit in our conversation, it's about the human process of opening communications and having conversations about what the systems are telling you and, and how different orgs have built their the structures of their organizations and telemetry controls in order to get information about the state of how their services are performing and how you, as especially an infrastructure engineer, can learn from what they've done so that you can make their lives better, easier, and so that they can move with higher velocity. How much of that, I guess, Forecasting or maybe prognosticating, it'd be a better word, about resources and infrastructure, do you have to do versus assume that uh, product and development teams will you know, be ahead of the game on as they build something? Are you coming in and just supporting them or do you try and anticipate their needs? This is a great question. This is something we talk about all the time and here's why it's important. If you are not able to anticipate the needs of your users, and I do call them my users because having that sort of user centricity and and customer focus, bless the hearts of all of the AWS slash Amazon folks that really introduced this this mode of thinking into our vernacular is something I think is critically important. And I do give them credit because I, I think though they may not have been the first to talk so heavily about user centricity, they've definitely been the loudest. And Having that sense of of where your customer is going, knowing what their needs are, and then getting so comfortable with where they are and where they're going that you can almost anticipate 
what they're going to need helps greatly within those conversations. This is the intersection of art and science because we can look at scale metrics and the factors that are growing, like we're getting more RPS requests per second. We are seeing that services that we assume to be highly durable may not be durable as we reach, again, certain uh, tiers of engagement and inflection. We are seeing that, wow, for whatever reason, we're running console on this fleet of servers and and console is uh, not, not to throw any stones at my friends at HashiCorp. I'm just using this as an example. Console is not keeping up with the number of service discovery responsibilities, the, the number of services that are starting to proliferate within the environment or something like that, of that shape. Like those are core infrastructure metrics that obviously I would, maybe not obviously, but definitely I would be probably a dereliction of duty if I'm not looking after those. But at the same time, oh, wow, that that part of the business over there is doing really well, like extraordinarily well. And, and I could just look at business metrics, like the daily average users, the amount of revenue that they're generating, the amount of service requests and the types of service requests are, that are coming in. And I think the important thing for a an engineering org leader, especially an engineering org leader in a scale, it doesn't even really have to be a scale organization. It could be a startup. It could be a three-person garage shop, if you will. Knowing what the business implications of what your products and services are doing and how that might influence and impact the infrastructure that enables those products and services is critically important. And that's everybody's responsibility, right? If you if you are, like if I were just a network person and going, I only care about networks and I only care about the NLBs, the, the load balancers, and I only care about the, the connection and durability of connections and uh, the amount of packets that I'm sending back and forth ingressing and ingressing into our service substrate, I'm probably, again, engaged in the dereliction of duty. So to answer your question quite directly, it's important to get out and get into your customer's business to understand them to a point where you can absolutely avoid sort of the reactionary motion where, oh, you guys need to go do this thing because the business has grown so dramatically and you're not keeping up, that's like a horrible place to be. Uh, so keeping parity and keeping pace is great. But if you can get ahead of them and say, uh, we've already built something that will enable you and, and help you to move faster and we'll scale with your business. That's sort of the, the holy grail. That's the perfect place to be. And that also helps with to your question of capacity and planning for resourcing so that you can uh, hopefully, again, build out sustainable and durable systems to support platform and product teams. Well, there's scalable and durable for infrastructure, also for team size, which I think can be more challenging to scale at times. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, I don't know if you're right-sized currently or if you're growing, but uh, what you envision for adding new professionals to the team? Yeah, th this one's a difficult one too, because what is the right size? I think Will Larson, who used to work at Stripe and maybe within our our little uh, industry, famously wrote this book uh, recently called An Elegant Puzzle. Uh, I was actually there as, as Will was writing it, and I would uh, travel down to San Francisco and sit next to him while I was visiting, literally while he was, he was writing this out, and, and I had been a, a long-term reader of his blog. He has a, a perspective on uh, what is sort of a, a decent way 
uh, and his experience of building teams and sizing teams and then deciding when you need to split teams. And I both agree and disagree with everything Will writes. Uh, I think it's all really dependent upon context. So Will talks about this rule of eight. Once a team gets to about eight or nine folks, that's probably a good collapsible size. Like that's a good size for an engineering manager and a team of seven or eight folks can durably sustain itself, can do an on-call rotation that doesn't cause too much over-indexing on, on, a, on a single individual or single few individuals carrying the pager um, is resilient in the face of a lot of keep the lights on work, KTLO, and can also innovate and deliver features and services with some reasonably good velocity. And I think that's correct. But I also think that there are, there are examples, for instance, famously at Google, of tunes that might have 20 people on them reporting to a single leader. And I don't recommend that for everyone. In fact, there are also famously many folks who absolutely detest that model, but you cannot argue with the results of Google and what it's been able to provide both the industry, its users, and just as a structure, uh, there, there are a number of people who see it as the epitome of technical uh, and engineering advancement within our industry. So you could then have a, a really healthy conversation about it. is the Google way the right way? Is what Will proffers the right way? Is the so-called two pizza teams that we hear about from Amazon the right way? I think the right way is the way that works for you and your organization. And you have to figure out how to, to your question, which I think has a point embedded in it, how to be sustainable for those teams, how to make sure that people have the ability to find their purpose, to build mastery, and to have some autonomy so that they can continue to do really good work and that you remove toil from the environment so that you're not burning people out and that you're giving folks, to our, the earlier point in our conversation, a, the space in agency enablement to build a career path and a trajectory for themselves so that you're not seeing high attrition and I think attrition is one of those uh, sort of proxy metrics that you can use to see whether or not you're doing the right thing. If people are leaving your team or no one wants to join your team, you're probably doing something bad. Are there any particular technical skills, I guess, placed in context of your work at Stripe that you would be looking for if you were hiring for a new candidate? For my organization, technical skills are, I look at aptitude. Sure, if you if you are a Golang developer and you are fairly competent in AWS network primitives, if you have done at least a, a little bit, if not a lot of work within distributed systems and, and scaled infrastructure with you know many, many different types of hosts and many different traffic patterns that you might see throughout the globe. So people connecting on mobile devices and high frequency trading devices or uh, like just any types of patterns where there, there are different gradations of, of traffic that you're ingressing and the need to make sure that you are highly reliable, uh, that you've got item potency built into API requests and things of that shape, then you're probably going to have uh, a good time at Stripe. But if you are not familiar with all of those things that I just said, but 
maybe one of them, but let's just say you're a really solid Go developer. I could probably teach you the rest. Um, if you come in and you're able to learn and have what I like to say, high, you have high aptitude and, and learning is just part of your DNA or, or as uh, again, in our industry, I think many people say you have that so-called growth mindset. You will also likely have a good time at Stripe. I, I was looking at a video earlier in the week by Simon Sinek, who's one of those thought leaders in leadership. And it's one that I've seen reference quite frequently, but it talks about Navy SEALs and how Navy SEALs determine who the best of the best of the best are. And super quick, the, the way, the punchline of the presentation is that Navy SEALs don't look for people with high, like sort of high competency in a functional area, but low trust, right? That if I, and they, they define trust as, do I trust you with my life? Do I trust you with my wife? Like it's the, it's the thing that they sort of snidely re, remark on that. But the point being is if you look at this sort of X, Y axis and you have a person that's high competency, but low trust, which is what you see arguably in a lot of situations where it's just like the drive is to, to ship, to ship, to ship, to get things done. And you'll excuse the, the, expletive, but, you know, sort of the asshole rich environment. You don't want that, right? No one wants that. No one wants to be in that environment where it's sort of rich with toxicity. What they say is, even if, if a person is lower in competency, but still high trust, I want that person on my team, right? Because competencies can be taught, right? Things change all the time. In a few months, we're going to be hit with go 1.1.8, right? And now everybody's going to have to learn how to use generics in Go. I'm not going to expect that I'm going to uh, interview, unless they're on the Golang team at Google or a contributor to Golang, I'm not going to expect that most of the folks that I'm interviewing are going to have deep, deep, deep expertise in generics in Go. And so I probably won't test them for that, but I will test their aptitude and I will test their ability to maybe read a code base that has generics in it and reason and ask me questions and say, well, why would you make that choice? Really good question because not just Go, C++, whatever, any language that supports generics, they're not always the right answer, right? So ask me about why I, I decided to do that this time as opposed to using interfaces or reflection. Makes sense. Well, maybe to wind down, we could talk a little bit about corporate culture. I'm curious if there's anything about Stripe's culture that, I mean, I guess it, every company is a little different, but is there anything about its payment space and the type of work you do that shapes it or any ways that you see it evolve or feel you can be a fulcrum for that? So this, again, goes back to the beginning of our conversation. Why, why am I at Stripe? Like, I have, like many of us, in, engaged in the industry and, and who have been operating, sort of understanding how, how to operate, I think is what I want to say, within the industry. A lot of opportunities. And, and I could be at a lot of different places. But I choose to be at this one because I truly believe in the people and the mission as articulated by our founders and reflected by literally everyone that I get to engage with every day, all the way through to our users, the people who are using our products and services. And here's the thing about it. Stripe, yes, it started as a payment services provider providing these payment gateway services to make it easier to buy things on the internet. Super simple concept that just had, again, arguably horrible execution by, with the products and services that were available at the time when the Colossons decided to 
build out their solution framework. What it has evolved into is this notion of the global payments and treasury network. What does that mean? Essentially, what it means is it's the democratization of access to the financial system globally. If through software, we can make it easy for a person in Kenya or in Argentina or in Uzbekistan or in Detroit, Michigan, to take an idea and turn that into a business and to scale that business into an enterprise, that's empowerment and that's global empowerment. And being able to be a part of that requires a lot of rigor, a lot of technical expertise, a lot of functional and high competency expertise, but it also requires an environment of high trust because you're dealing with people's money and people's money is their livelihood and their ability to sort of define those paths, those objectives for themselves. And what I find about Stripe's culture, its operating and leadership principles, is that they are framed in a way that amplifies the attitudes, the norms, and the behaviors that are expected in order to deliver on that promise. And I love being there. I just love being surrounded by people who are mission-focused, who understand what and why they are doing and who they are doing those things for. I don't begrudge my friends who work in ad tech, which has delivered a ton of remunerative advantage for a number of companies. And those companies have subsequently produced a lot of technical artifacts that I, quite frankly, use in, in the business today to help further my teams and, the, the again, objectively, the types of things that we're trying to deliver on behalf of our users internally are a result of, of millions and billions of dollars that the industry has reaped from ad tech. But this notion that I am able to help a business grow so that maybe a person who's got a, a great idea and up to this point didn't see a path for getting that idea executed online or in any sort of channel, you know, brick and mortar or what have you, now can do that because of the software that we provide and they can put food on their table every night. That was the reason I joined Stripe and that's the reason I stay at Stripe. And that's the reason I want to see Stripe continue to build the types of system structures and variants and products that will further enable folks like the people that I grew up with back in Detroit to capture some of the value and to be a part of the future, the inevitable future that we're all marching rapidly towards. Well, it's a great vision. I definitely want to keep my eye on Stripe and learn more about this somewhat secretive project you alluded to in the future. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Tramil, thank you so much for taking the time to come on Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure.